I'm Lindsay Morgan, and you're listening to Talking Policy. Around the world, democracy is being challenged as never before. As Americans gear up for the midterm elections, many are wondering how countries like the United States can safeguard the integrity of elections, encourage broad-based political participation, prevent violence, and ensure that independent media flourish. This fall, Talking Policy's series on democracy will welcome experts from across the University of California to consider the future of democracy. Ever since the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, many Americans have been grappling with the fact that some of their fellow citizens seem to believe that political violence is justified and are willing to support candidates who advocate for violence. Why would some voters reward violent people or violent groups with political power? A new book by Sarah Daly answers that question. Sarah is an associate professor of political science at Columbia University, and she's here today to talk with us about her book, Violent Victors, Why Bloodstained Parties Win Post-War Elections. Welcome to the podcast, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me, Lindsay. It's good to, it's good to have you. Um, So your book is a really comprehensive study of elections after civil wars and answers the question of why so many voters support parties that engage in mass violence against civilians. So talk to me about what inspired you to want to study this this very perplexing phenomenon. Yes. So the the book asks, as as you summarized, why do parties that engaged in atrocious use of force in civil war perform well in post-war democratic elections? How do parties guilty of violence against the civilian population seek that population's votes? And when would a victimized population elect its tormentors to govern it? And what are the implications of these elections for peace, democracy, justice, and governance? So several personal experiences really inspired me to write the book. As an undergraduate at Stanford, I took a human rights course in which we learned about Chile's coup and the repressive dictatorship that took over 40,000 lives. I assumed that given the human rights abuses of Pinochet's regime that all Chileans naturally rejected Pinochet. And then I went to live and study um, in Chile and I lived with a family that was very much pro-Pinochet. I was struck by this. I was struck again while I was researching my first book. My book asked, why do some armed groups silence their guns while others remilitarize and return to organized violence? The answer lies with the geography of armed groups recruitment, whether local or non-local. And for this book, I engaged in 18 months of field work in Colombia and ex-fighters and victims told me about the massacres, the rapes, the torture, the kidnappings that the paramilitaries had carried out. And yet I found that in many places, the populations tolerated and even supported the former paramilitary forces and their allied politicians, even after the paramilitaries had demilitarized. And this political behavior exhibits itself broadly. For example, in El Salvador in 1994, the party tied to the death squads responsible with the armed forces for the vast majority of political killings won the election. In Colombia in 2018, the party of Alvaro Uribe facing hundreds of investigations for ties to paramilitaries and what Human Rights Watch called one of the worst episodes of mass atrocity in the Western Hemisphere won the elections. Around the world after winning peace, populations vote for political parties with deep roots in the violent organizations of the past. 
they do so in the aftermath of nearly every civil war, both long and short, in ethnic and non-ethnic societies, in rich and poor countries, in the presence of peacekeepers and in their absence in nearly all regions of the world. And so this is what motivated me to write the book. On the face of it, it's really hard to wrap your head around why people would make choices like that um, from the outside. So your book combines um, case studies from Latin America, as you just described, um, some of the countries that you've worked in with experimental survey evidence and new data on post-war elections around the world. Um, And you have reviewed 205 belligerent parties that have transitioned from out of war between 1970 and 2015. So you've looked at just a huge amount of experience across countries, across wars, across elections to try to understand this really strange phenomenon of people voting um, in groups that committed violence against them. So what did you find? I mean, why does this happen so consistently? What's going on? Yeah, so overall, I found that the electoral success of bloodstained parties depends not on the extent of their atrocities or electoral coercion, but on the military outcomes of the war. Bloodstained parties, if war winning, successfully campaign as the best providers of future societal peace. So in the book, I explain why this is the case. I argue that winning belligerents are able to claim credit for peace, which serves to justify their use of atrocities and translates into a reputation for competence on the provision of security. Then if through its campaigning, the belligerent party can signal to voters that it will restrain its violence in the future, it can own the security issue that is paramount to large numbers of voters emerging from the anarchy of civil war. So the new cross-national data on all 205 belligerent parties around the world that you mentioned reveals that war outcomes prove powerful predictors of electoral performance of belligerent parties, both rebel and government, in founding post-war elections. If militarily winning, abusive belligerent parties perform well, even where elections are free, clean, and fair. For 18 conflicts globally, I find that parties' vote share remained relatively constant whether the belligerents were responsible for all or none of the atrocities at the local level, but that these vote shares tracked with whether the belligerents militarily won or lost the war locally. Observational survey data from 16 countries around the world show that an average of 54% of citizens were most most concerned with securing the future. And these security voters were significantly more likely to cast their ballots for the winning combatant party over either militarily losing or non-belligerent parties. So your main finding is that in these post-war elections, these violent groups from, from the war, which then become electoral parties are able to convince voters that they are the best option for preventing a return to violence, for securing peace, and that that's the case even when they are competing electorally with other um, parties that, that actually offer a viable alternative, which is just incredible. Were there cases when you looked out over all of these, you know, hundreds of cases that you examined where this wasn't the case? Were there exceptions? First, there's several cases that defied the trend of high security salience ahead of the founding elections. So they're actually beyond the scope of the theory. Um, But these are um, cases in which, for example, um, the wars took place in non-contiguous or satellite territories. um, So the violence only affected certain regions and minority populations. Um, This would be, for example, Philippines, United Kingdom, Indonesia, 
where those who were living in Lausanne, Great Britain, Java, they likely didn't acutely feel the Civil War violence um, taking place in the island territories of Mindanao, Northern Ireland, East Timor, or the relief when peace followed. So security voting was not the powerful force in the post-war national elections in the three states, and the Victor Party didn't get the sort of significant boost from war outcomes. Um, instead, other types of dimensions of voting dominated. Then there are cases in which the rebel and government belligerent parties ran poor campaigns, um, and they were punished electorally for doing so. For, so, for example, the KLA in Kosovo um, ended up losing to the non-belligerent Democratic League of Kosovo party because the KLA's successor party failed to moderate, reach beyond its wartime constituency, or signal restraint. Um, and then there's a final set of cases in which the brutal war winner loses the election because voters choose non-belligerents offer of rule of law over belligerents promises of iron fist security. Um, so for example, in Liberia, despite military successes, neither the rebel, uh, neither of the rebel groups nor the belligerent government party emerged as significant forces in the 2005 election. Um, so instead, two non-belligerents, a female technocrat and a football star um, competed for votes because the citizenry were disillusioned with short-lived episodes of past um, post-war peace and preferred civilian parties. So there are exceptions, but as you say, overall, um, the theory that your book explores does hold across decades, across countries, across cultures. It's it's really interesting. So what does this mean for if you have all of these post-conflict countries having elections and forming governments that will seek to repair and grow um, a state and a, and a country? And these governments are run by these uh, parties that were incredibly violent um, war makers. I mean, what does it mean for governance? Um, what kind of governments emerge from all of this? You know, are they good governments? Are they good leaders? You know, if people are betting that party that that won the war is best equipped to secure the peace, do do the People who voted them in, is that what they get? Do they get peace? Are they able to prevent a recurrence of violence? Yeah, so the book's core argument implies that against off-sighted fears, post-conflict elections are not necessarily destabilizing, um, leading to war recurrence. Elected war winner governments, they prove able to not only tie their own violent hands, but also to deter the losers from remilitarizing. So importantly, though, with an unaltered balance of military power after war, there exists little reason for either the war winner or the war loser to reinitiate violence because a new war wouldn't have a different outcome. And so peace tends to hold. So this is the most likely outcome after, um, after war, after post-war elections. But as I develop in more depth in an international security piece, if the balance of power instead inverts after war's end, and using this heuristic of war outcomes to guide their vote, the electorate chooses the now weaker war winner. Electoral results end up becoming misaligned with military power, and the newly empowered belligerent becomes incentivized to return to war. Um, this is because of the strong relationship between war outcomes and post-war election results, so that 
the belligerent will remilitarize to take advantage of the power change, hoping to try its hand at the polls again in the future from a position of a superior war outcome. And showing, I uh, can show this with new data on whether the belligerents returned to war, who initiated the new fighting, data on shifts in the power balance after war. And I find that risks of remilitarization rise dramatically to 54% when the balance of power inverts, but the war winner nonetheless wins the election compared to less than 1% if the power balance sustains. So there is this Leviathan piece. When I think of a government's role, I mean, uh, clearly um, security, human security is is pretty fundamental, but so is, well, you know, general welfare, public goods. How good are these these parties at securing public goods? So in electing such peace and experiencing these gains in security, the book's argument suggests that citizens often sacrifice social welfare. Um, I use an original database of 784 paramilitary-tied mayors derived from over 42,000 pages of Colombian sentencing documents um, and what's called a regression discontinuity design. And I find that when a paramilitary mayor barely won an election, the municipality experienced on average an 85% reduction in thefts, but a 17 percentage point reduction in educational coverage and a 61% reduction in educational spending compared to when such mayors narrowly lost the election. Um, And the mechanism, I take this up in greater depth in a British Journal of Political Science article, is that coercive politicians' prioritization of security crowded out the resources for other public goods and social welfare. What about justice? I mean, having a a group that committed heinous crimes, you know, against civilians win an election just feels really unfair. It's true. The election of violent victors tends to forestall legal accountability um, for perpetrators of crimes against humanity, especially those shielded by acquiring this elected political power. But this mitigating role of security that I discussed on desires for retribution against war winners may wane over time. Um, and so demands for prosecution may expand. Um, this means that perpetrators are likely unable to evade blame forever. Um, so there's promise that over time, progress toward transitional justice may become possible. Is that something that you've seen? Are there examples of that? I think across the world, we see lots of cases um, in which transitional justice is stalled in the short term, but becomes possible over the long term. You see this with Fujimori in Peru, long after the end of the war, being um, uh, tried for for some of his human rights abuses. So I think this is a general um, trend you see in Colombia, um, Uribe in house arrest long after um, some of the false positive scandal um, uh, had broken. So I think uh, across the across the board, uh, there are, there are trends that justice becomes more possible over time. Just following on that a little, I mean, your book certainly illuminates a lot of the very painful trade offs and and perverse incentives um, at work. If it's true, then that it benefits violent groups during war to be violent and ruthless in order to win, to get the upper hand, you know, militarily so that they win electorally. Well, well, that is a perverse incentive. You know, it's a perverse incentive to start a war, perhaps if your victory is likely, if that means that then your electoral victory is also likely consolidating power. The idea that, yeah, um, belligerents can escape punishment for for their crimes, at least in the short run, 
um, the idea that, you know, weaker belligerents um, have an incentive perhaps to not end war because they're unlikely to win in a in an election. I mean, these are all really kind of uncomfortable things to, to grapple with. I'm not sure how many, um, you know, warring parties are reading your book. Um, but what are we supposed to do with this? I mean, these are some really complicated and messy, um, you know, phenomena that you're describing. What, what do you what do you make of all that? And, and are they reading your book? Are you concerned about that? So the book does seem to imply perverse incentives for belligerents to engage in ruthless violence, um, to obtain the upper hand militarily and then electorally, um, or for dangerous incentives um, to start wars if victory seems assured. Um, and it indicates that if winning in war, belligerents can escape electoral retribution for their transgressions um, in the short run. But I want to make the point that transgressions are unlikely to increase prospects for wartime military success. Um, indeed, there's so many studies out there that have demonstrated the counterproductive nature of indiscriminate violence in war, which I, I confirm um, in much of my earlier work. And in the long run, ghosts from the past tend to catch up with their victimizers. So it's not their atrocities that bolster belligerent parties uh, in these post-war elections, um, winning the war that does so. So it's want to make sure that that's clear. But you also point to really painful trade-offs. And these are inherent in transitions and numerous scholars have noted them, that what's necessary to avert instability and recurrent war um, may perversely protect human rights abusers from justice, prevent the country from effectively resolving what Samuel Huntington called the torture problem um, and hindering the deepening of democracy. Um, how I sort of fall on this, though, it's voters themselves who ultimately have to weigh um, these trade-offs and choose between peace um, or justice and democratization in the short run. And if the elections are free and fair, the outcome suggests that with their ballots, war-ravaged voters tend to prioritize stability. Um, but the good news of the book suggests that justice and democratization may also eventually become possible. Um, so the question becomes, how can we speed up the normalization of politics after violence? How can we generate conditions for transitional legal accountability, protect and deepen democracy, establish rule of law and enhance social development, given um, the, the dynamics that I, that I look at in, in the book? And interventions aimed at securing the peace, um, buttressing the balance of power, preventing waves of criminality, reducing the urgency of security issues, um, encountering especially strategic efforts to spin the violent past, may be able to dampen some of the perverse electoral potency of these war outcomes and amplify opportunities for justice and liberalism. I want to turn now, um, my last question, to ask you to reflect a little bit about what all of this might mean for the United States. A lot of our listeners are, are based in the U.S., but it raises a lot of questions, I think, for us Americans, it, particularly, you know, I was just reading about a survey uh, which was done on behalf of the, the Violence Prevention Research Program at UC Davis um, that surveyed 8,600 Americans and found that just over 20% were willing to condone political violence at least some of the time. And when asked if having a strong leader for America is more important, than having a democracy, more than 40% of those who were polled said that, yeah, they agreed in some, in some respect with that statement. So that seems to suggest 
that just as you found in your book globally, you know, that people are willing to trade certain values or certain needs for others. And so I think for all of us just thinking about, you know, the January 6th committee is going to be releasing its report soon. I think it's on a lot of our minds, um, political violence here in the U.S. and a, a feeling that it has become more acceptable to talk about it, to condone it. I'm curious what you think about how support for political violence by parties, you know, by candidates in the U.S., how would that affect them at the polls, do you think? So in recent years, politics have exhibited chilling similarities to the context I deal with in the book. Um, so this motivated me to write a Washington Post monkey cage piece on Trump's use of the strongman electoral playbook in 2020. This playbook has been picked up by others um, as Trump and the violent victors in my book The politicians play the law and order card. They seek to heighten the salience or urgency of anarchy to justify an adherence to a savior strongman. They argue they shouldn't be blamed for violence, but instead should be rewarded with votes for preventing greater turmoil. A canvas surrounded by military uniforms um, and brag about links to um, violent militias. They use propaganda to spin a narrative in which the strong break the law so as to provide stability. Given their perceived ownership of the security issue, these politicians have incentives to keep security threats alive through their scary rhetoric, but they may also perversely feel compelled to do so by fomenting threats of an actual low-level insecurity and violence. Core voters, and sometimes even swing voters, may respond to this appeals with their security-motivated votes. This plays into a broader pattern that when feeling threatened, people prove willing to forego rights and liberties. They favor hardline approaches to security and crime at times voting seemingly against their self-interest. This suggests that parties terrifyingly may be electorally rewarded for their support of political violence in the U.S. I'm currently engaging in research on what can be done to counter this trend. Um, Undermining fear-mongering politics and politicians' protection rackets reorienting the election away from security issues on which violence-tied politicians may have a perverse advantage, making voters feel safe to reduce the salience of security, bolstering non-belligerent parties and ensuring that they adopt a rule-abider political equilibrium strategy. Um, So that means promising security within the confines of the law, running candidates with clean human rights records, advancing moderate policies, targeting the median voter, and outsiders could help to strengthen these parties' advantages on non-security valence issues, um, economic recovery, economic issues to further boost their electoral successes, and critically countering misinformation uh, and the spinning of reality. Well, and you're right. I mean, that is also a finding of your book, that wars can end, and they do. Sarah, thanks for being with us on Talking Policy. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being with us at IGCC and have a great week.